Welcome to the 103rd episode of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And for those of you who are new or maybe have forgotten, we do this in three parts where we talk about national news that have implications for gun rights. We talk about some of the gun content that's out there and we criticize it heavily sometimes. And we then we talk about my favorite part, which is questions and answers. I was just actually a few days ago, I put up the uh, last podcast and, uh, you know, I had so much material left over. I thought, hey, I can I can run another one of these. So that's what we're going to do for number 103. And if you have any comments or questions or anything you'd like us to address, you can go ahead and put it in the comments section on Podbean, which is our main podcast carrier or you can go ahead and email them directly to me at kbmakel at aol.com kbmakel at aol.com so let's get to it uh, first thing i'd like to talk about is last couple months i kind of been on light duty and the reason is i had uh, cataract eye surgery um you just reached that point in life where that had to happen um I started noticing a little bit of blurriness in my uh, um, left eye. I'm right eye dominant, right-handed, so it, it didn't really I didn't really notice it that much until it got really pretty bad. And then I went to the doctor, and I had to go to the eye doctor, and they basically said, "Well, you know that it's time to have the cataract surgery done." And oh, by the way, your right eye isn't that far behind, so. You know, this, that's that was kind of a, a surprise. I, I didn't really like it at first. I was kind of like, hey, I could just kind of muddle through this. But, um, you know, I'm one of those lucky people, had an astigmatism. And uh, basically, it uh, is just one of those things that I learned to live with it. It's fine. and uh, But it did keep me out of flight school uh, some years ago. And, you know, <coughs> I just couldn't even begin to qualify. Um couldn't even begin to qualify. So um, we live in an age of medical miracles. They basically took out the old lenses and put in new ones that correct the astigmatism. So my vision is actually much better now. Uh, uncorrected, I have 20-20 vision in each eye, but I do need uh, some magnifiers or some, you know, for up close reading. But you know, that's a small, a small inconvenience. Um, I would say that anybody going out there, uh, here's the thing as far as it applies to guns, which is really good, is um, it will improve your shooting to have better eyesight, I think. Uh, you do see that front sight a lot more crisply. Um, you don't get the halo effect or some of the other star effects around a red dot or holographic sights or anything else. One of the, one of the amazing things was I would... Um, look through my EOTech with my right eye and it looked normal the way my EOTech always looks and then I would go and put it up and look through it with my left eye and it was just a, a world of difference the left eye was a lot more blurry I don't have a cat here who wants to he wants to chime in too but anyway uh, the the deal with it is uh, you know it's it's a process you go through it and it was delayed because during the worst parts of the COVID pandemic, people weren't doing this, so they're now that that is largely over with. Things like the dentist and and the eye doctor and all that are in, 
incredibly crowded by all the people who deferred their treatment until after the worst of the pandemic. So uh, it, it really has uh, uh, been something that's been, uh, I hate to use the word eye-opening because that's such a horrible <laughs> analogy, but uh, you know, it, my depth perception has, has changed a little bit, improved, it's improved. Um, I do notice that I was I was light sensitive for a while. That's largely gone away, but I still still am kind of light sensitive outdoors. And um, you know, it's and a lot of the headaches and things I used to get are, are gone now, which is a real blessing. You know, there's nothing like those eye strain headaches that uh, just kind of put you out for hours and hours and hours. Uh, you know, it's going. It improves shooting. I mean, you know. Um, the only thing I've had to do is kind of refocus a couple of uh, lens, a couple of optical sights, a couple of scopes. But other than that, it's uh, it's really helped. The awkward phase was when one eye was done and then they wait about two weeks to do the other one. And of course, it was during that two weeks, I was served up, probably teed up the best shot on a coyote anybody could hope for probably about 125 yards away standing um you know i my eye my dominant eye sight which was the the last one they did and of course i was waiting to have that one done uh, i just couldn't identify it and i just wanted to make sure that this was not fluffy the german shepherd because this was the biggest coyote girth wise and everything i'd ever seen but um as it was as soon as he turned and started to run um I saw the I saw what it was and I put a shot at at him but but just hit right over him so uh, you know when when El Coyote wants a rematch I'll be ready because my other eye has been operated on and it's it's just good to go so that's the uh, that's the first thing uh, next thing is I I don't know did you see that thing with Geraldo Rivera and Dan Bongino and and you know. Geraldo calls him a punk and throws a piece of paper at the camera. I mean, you know, I, I just we're watching the WWE and and maybe and if that's actually the case, I actually have respect for Geraldo where he's like, well, I'm just going to go after this guy kind of guy and do this so that he gets more notoriety because face it, Geraldo's about had it. He's yeah, I think I think Geraldo's in his late 70s. So, you know, he's he's going to retire at some point. And Bongino's a young guy coming up, just took over Rush Limbaugh's, you know, uh, time slot. So everything is, you know, Bongino is the, the future. And I think, I think really in kind of some professional courtesy, Geraldo was making the fuss just to make Bongino a little more famous. I hope that's what it is because if it's not, <laughs> if he actually is that big a jerk, then then I don't know what he's doing on television. So, you know, that's just one kind of observation. And what I like about Bongino is he is a 2A guy. He is, there is no two ways about that. A person who's been very, very disappointing was this Lynn Cheney, you know, I mean... Her voting record is very conservative. She was a good, you know. I thought she was actually pretty good. I I thought she was, she was probably an up and comer and everything, and, and she managed to self destruct because she's a part of the establishment, and you know the reason they kicked her out 
of the number three position in the the house well whatever that hierarchy is a bs hierarchy they have um count what a conference chair or some some nonsensical title like that um anyway the reason they kicked her out was because she was actively undermining trump and one of the things she did was she went to all the living all the old geezers who used to be defense secretary and uh, got them to sign on an op-ed talking about what a bad person trump is what a bad commander-in-chief he is even the ones he fired you know goofs like mattis and esper and of course her daddy signed on to it too dick cheney her daddy but she's out there doing this stuff and it's like hey if you don't like trump that's fine but you don't undermine your own party by doing garbage moves like this and it just goes to show you and and you know what she just she marched into oblivion and guess what um i don't think the voters of wyoming i think they're gonna nail her i mean she also voted for the impeachment and all this other stuff all this other trash she's just garbage she is estably trash just like mitt romney just like pelosi just like schumer their allegiance is not to the united states their allegiance is to the establishment and make no mistake about that these people don't have a patriotic bone in their body they would hey they <laughs> i mean look at what the establishment does they'll tear down the border you know they'll tear down the border and let anybody in because it fits their establishment goals they will they will do wrench foreign policy you know john kerry will go over and tell the iranians hey don't worry trump's going to be out of office like i don't know how he knew that because it seems like the fix was in so he must have had some insider knowledge that that was going to happen you know but i mean these guys they have no allegiance to the united states their allegiance is to the establishment which has nourished them, brought them up, fed them, and provides them a soft place to land when they're out of power, and gives them these cute little jobs when they're in power. It's disgusting and despicable. You know, I mean, if this isn't an argument for term limits, I don't know what. We got to term limit some of these people out. So this establishment cabal is kind of broken, you know. Um, too many people have got stuff um, too much influence well beyond what they what they deserve as elected officials oh the next thing is the nra yeah their petition for bankruptcy was thrown out of court because the judge said hey you're just trying to evade prosecution or something you know i, I don't know it sounds sounds ridiculous um you know the nra will is is going to be the nra and and what i tell people that they don't understand is that there's two nras they're the guys who do all the competition the training and all that other stuff that's the traditional nra the stuff the nra did the institute for legislative action is kind of the political action arm and really what they do is mobilize grassroots voters people who think the nra has you know tons of cash and they they pour it into races like george soros does if they think that it's a conservative 
thing like George Soros, they're, they're crazy. It's not. It's mobilizing grassroots voters has always been the, the NRA's thing because they just don't have that kind of cash, obviously. So, I, I mean, the, the NRA probably does need some reform. I think the board is way too big. We, we also have to, you know, the last real NRA president was Heston. Charlton Heston was the man you know, obviously was known far and wide as, as an actor. And, you know, he, he really was a, a bigger than life personality. He was the last real president they had. Everybody else since then has been a figurehead and the guy in charge is LaPierre. And I'm not sure that that's the way it needs to go forward. I mean, I'm not, you could spend 20 podcast hours talking over what's been done well, what's been done badly, what Lane, Wayne LaPierre has done good, what he's done bad, should he be there, should he not be there, what kind of deal does he get when he retires. A lot of this stuff, I, you know, you hear it and you don't know that any of it's true. You don't know what's true and what's not. But I think what has to happen is there has to be some meaningful reform. goes to the Supreme Court we have a decent shot at uh, getting a a good 2A um, good for the 2A decision and you know there's actually a bright spot in the judicial process which is court voted nine to nothing to end the uh, illegal search and seizure of firearms you know I don't know all the specifics of the case but you know obviously cut and dry they can't you know your local police guys just can't go around saying hey guess what we're going to take all the guns now no they they can't do that hey the tornado hit we need to pick up all the guns no no they can't do that so that's a good thing probably all stems from some of this katrina like business it went on with the probably the most corrupt police department in the united states the new orleans police yeah okay uh let's see We'll talk about the M17 woes, you know, the M17 pistols, one thing's wrong with it after another. Uh, that You know, that's to be expected. It's, you know, the 9mm pistol, the Army and the Air Force, the Navy, the Coast Guard, I guess. It's even the Space Force. <laughs> I don't know what they need a pistol for, but uh, even the Space Force probably has them or is going to get them. Uh, the Marines got the M18, which is the shorter one, which I can't understand. I just can't understand that. But anyway, um, maybe there's an advantage to it, but I don't think so. Other than it falls into this horribly stupid thinking that smaller and shorter is more cool. It's more elite, you know. It's not enough to have an M16A1. You have to have the XM177, you know, the, the CAR-15, because real men carry the CAR-15 because it looks so much cooler. And it's like, what? Absolutely what? You know, um, there are times when you just look at and you see these short, you know, the Uzi isn't small enough. You have to have the micro Uzi or the mini Uzi. Um, 
this whole thing that's smaller is is more cool it doesn't make a lot of sense the only time smaller is better is when you have to hide it yeah you have to hide it because you really don't get a weight savings in a pistol between an m17 and an m18 is not going to be that noticeable but why would you want to give up anything is barrel length or sight radius beyond me it's absolutely beyond me but of course they're finding that there's a little flaw here a little flaw there and and they're they're fixing them that's to happen with any uh, with any new uh weapon system you know they usually find two or three things that they have to adjust after the fact and who knows maybe they'll get a handgun that's as good as the beretta m9 that it replaced maybe it'll, maybe someday it'll be as good as a beretta who knows <laughs> all right oh that brings me to another thing I, I was listening to another podcast and the guy is i think probably a policeman no military experience he even says i have no military experience and then he goes into this you know a little later into this thing well that's just how the military works and it's like how would you know you've never been in it you don't know anything about the military if you've never if you've never really been in it then you know how the military works and the military works basically you know really a pretty logical organized way but it's a big organization so a lot of the things that happen aren't necessarily good for you as an individual but they're good for the organization as a whole and uh, new equipment fielding is a is absolutely one of those things um, I've been in units that's been I've been in several units that have been the first to get new things and everybody envies you because obviously you're high on the priority list and that's just the way that is so you're high on the priority list you get something cool well then pretty soon everybody has something cool and then it's not so special anymore <laughs> and uh, you know that's part of the fielding process you know they they adopt something they standardize they do all that and then they have to procure it and then they have to depending on what it is transition it into the field with some sort of new equipment training uh, package and you know they do that in an orderly manner and then they turn you know when they hand these things to a unit then they collect up the old things that it's replacing and you can't just send 500,000 handguns to the army depot system and say hey man here you go here are the old ones here you go or a hundred thousand or whatever the the um the number is so people are just kind of looking at that and going well you know it's it's slow and methodical i can tell you that i saw units that turned in 1911s in 1995 and of course everybody knows well 1980 what was it 1984 was when the beretta was adopted but it wasn't fully fielded and face it you know they were only going to buy so many per year and then it kind of it because then it establishes kind of a life cycle you know you by the time you get the last ones a few years later the first ones you bought probably have to go through some sort of depot or refurbishing process and you've bought a few more and you give that to the unit that has sent theirs in so it's it's kind of a lot of rotational things in there you just don't go buy a hundred thousand pistols hand them out and then you know 
five years, ten years later, say, hey, man, these things all need to go back to the depot and be refinished and minor repairs and everything else and then send all 100000 back. You want to do it in a very cyclic, in a very orderly manner. Well, that that doesn't exactly... Uh, um, you know, that doesn't exactly bode well for the individual who wants, you know, his turned in and sent right back to him right away. He's going to, everyone's going to have to wait their turn and, and, uh, you know, all this stuff, all this stuff is going to happen, but it's a, it's a process and all managing all of that is a very, very big job. So when somebody who does has never been in the military and has never lived with the the board, everybody wants to, you know, play tactical and talk about strike plates and and body armor and 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 the latest gizmo which should go on all the M16s or M4s. Um, everybody wants to talk about that, but nobody wants to talk about behind all that. There is a very very large, cumbersome. Um, machine that keeps all this stuff going and nobody really nobody really wants to be I'm the logistics expert who does this they everybody wants to be the tactical operator and all the rest of it who's and, and have just piles of all this high-speed gear that they have access to so anyway that's how the military works sometimes you have that sometimes you have to be inside baseball to really know what that is Oh, my M17, M1917 Enfield, <laughs> the sporterized monster. The update for that, the quick background is, uh, I came into possession of this. It was in pieces. It was it was horribly mangled and, and uh, um, in an attempted Bubba sporterization. So basically, I just kind of put it together, uh, blued it myself, actually. It looks really nice for, for something I did. It looks pretty nice. And then I had a, a scope base put on it, and now I have scope rings and a vintage Weaver K6 scope on there. And uh, I'm just waiting to uh, test fire that. It's been kind of on the back burner with my eye surgery, but I will get to it. But it is all together now. And, you know, it, uh, well, beauty, I hope beauty is as beauty does. Because aesthetically, this is not going to win anything, especially as I've told you, there's some sort of animal carved into the buttstock. It has the head of a cat and the body of a bear. So I don't know what that is. <laughs> but I, at first I thought the obvious was, well, it's a bear cat. But I looked up bear cat. And they look totally different. So it's got to be something else. Uh, there's some sort of cryptid out there. The, the artist who did this in this 1950s you know, Fasian stock, you know, aftermarket 1917 stock, whatever inspired him. I, I hope it's, uh, I hope we can get a picture of it or something and uh, maybe put it on one of those cryptozoology sites. Ah, uh, okay. Talking about, you know, my favorite thing. I think gun sales are slowing down. I know they're, they're saying we did a record number of, of background checks. But every time I go into a gun store now, they have plenty, plenty of inventory, and I even see some of the things that are the new, that were the new hotness before the uh, pandemic, i.e., the Colt fire, the Colt, God, the Ruger 5.7, um, you know, in the whopping 5.7 by 28 cartridge that, you know, costs like two bucks a piece now if you can find it, if you know where to look. 
Um, you know, I, I th those things are selling for under MSRP, which I was surprised because I remember for a long time, um, for several months, not a long time, but several months, they were selling for over MSRP. You know, I mean, MSRP being like 750 bucks, something like that, and they were selling for, you know, upwards of a thousand in some cases. Now they're allowed down to like 699 or something through the latest sales flyer I saw. I attribute that to ammunition. If ammunition was out there, maybe more people would be biting, but they're obviously producing the guns and there's precious little ammo to shoot in it, so therefore the guns are not that attractive to buyers. So, and, and you're even seeing ARs kind of, you know, all this stuff that was a totally sold out and gone. ARs are back. A lot of this stuff is all back now, but, you know, the ammo is still a problem. It's still a problem. Availability is getting a little better, but the prices are very high, very high. So I think that uh, we're going to see something. Hopefully something will break. I, I'm thinking that in the next six months you'll see a lot of availability and maybe reloading components i.e. primers hitting the shelves and then in 12 months you may start seeing some more normal pricing as you know all this ramped up production starts starts hitting the uh, market and we really haven't seen a lot of stuff out of uh, uh, Russia and some of these other countries that have been kind of closed for COVID but as soon as that eases up I think I think you're going to see a lot of it because price competitiveness is something that uh, steel cased ammo full metal jacket ammo is really really good at and uh, if there's a lot of that around at attractive prices um, you know it could drive the market down a little bit for some of this other stuff that we're seeing okay boop, boop 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 that is that for the first two parts of the podcast actually and the next part is questions and answers and um, the first question I have is something related to the last podcast and it was please compare the 44 auto magnum with a 44 magnum desert eagle well, I'm not really qualified to do that because I've never shot a 44 auto mag. I have seen them. I have picked them up a long time ago. But I can I can give you some some good some good feelings kind of expand on what I said in the last podcast. Um you know the the two cartridges are quite different. One is the 44 auto mag is a rimless slightly bottlenecked cartridge it fires the 429 diameter projectile 44 magnum is a rimmed notionally a revolver cartridge that is straight walled that shoots the same bullet 429 uh, theoretically the auto mag should probably be a little more powerful if they if you could actually put them in similar guns um, it should theoretically be more powerful but it's not they're they're roughly equivalent you know they're they're about equivalent so you gain nothing with the automag cartridge other than it was in an automatic pistol okay so you you have that and then you have the 44 magnum revolver round which works flawlessly in a desert eagle so that advantage of the automag is kind of not there anymore 
Uh, the Automag and the Desert Eagle are completely different designs. The Automag was designed in the late 60s and the Desert Eagle in the kind of the mid 80s, early to mid 80s. And, and basically a lot of the science of ergonomics, in guns anyway, had, uh, had transpired. So, you know, if you look at the Automag, it, it looks kind of like it would belong in the family of the Ruger standard pistol, you know, standard model 22 pistol. You know, it's got the kind of that rounded receiver fixed barrel and it has a bolt that you pull out the back and release now that's the Ruger pistols are all blowback so this the similarity kind of ends there with the automag it's got kind of a locking multi-lug bolt similar to an AR-15 rifle and similar to the Desert Eagle the bolts are actually remarkably similar so but what you don't have is a gun that has been designed to really mitigate a lot of recoil the barrel is a little kind of light i would say um, the grip is reasonable but again it's more of kind of a sleek design it's it's not a beefy design that's going to have mass that will absorb recoil the way the desert eagle does um, so you you know you have two different kind of guns the earlier gun the auto mag is not going to manage recoil nearly as well as the desert eagle it just in my opinion it's not so there therefore those are the kind of the differences uh, the desert eagle is a much more much more of a traditional design it has it has a slide kind of a it, it really kind of comes out to it's it's sort of a cutaway slide if you will and the barrel is is attached to the frame and you know and and you can pop it out for cleaning it's not a fixed barrel like the uh, automag is so uh it's a much it's kind of a similar type of design it's i don't want to say it's a military design because it's not and has never been used for it but it has a lot of aspects to it that look very military that that it, you know it was kind of designed and, and fabricated it initially at IMI Israeli military industries and they uh, you know they they made obviously military stuff so they they kind of militarized this design made it rugged and that's why they are so reliable and that's why they are as good as they are accuracy I cannot speak to I can I cannot speak to the automag accuracy I assume it is sufficiently accurate and people are are happy with it I will I will tell you though from personal experience of having shot the Desert Eagle quite a bit is that the Desert Eagle is exceptionally accurate and in 44 Magnum it is it is scary accurate um, I think a Desert Eagle in 44 Magnum will shoot with some of the finest custom gunsmith uh, 1911 style target pistols that are out there I mean it just will it um, it it's I don't know if it's the polygon rifling in the barrel. I don't know if it's the tolerances. I don't know if it's just the overall quality of the build. But the Desert Eagle is will shoot with pistols that cost three times as much, four times as much probably. I don't know what a good. I don't know what a good custom 1911 costs. That's they're beyond my means, and uh, frankly, I think you can get very very excellent performance for thousands of dollars less 
so those are the those are the biggest things the other the other thing is 44 magnum ammunition that you can use in your desert eagle which has to be jacketed by the way it has to be um, because of the gas system um, that is available anywhere you can you can get off the shelf 44 magnum you know and if they if I don't think anybody loads a lead bullet 44 magnum anymore um, so anyway uh, it's got to be lead bullet but that is you know widely available as 44 magnum ammunition 44 auto mag was a proprietary 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 cartridge and I think only uh, a company I think it was in Mexico or maybe Brazil made it back in the 70s supply was always a problem you know that was pre NAFTA and all this and so you know shipping this stuff was a hassle and um, getting as a matter of fact most people who had an automag had to load for it they had to cut down 308 or 30-06 cases kind of to the right length and kind of neck them down and those are not things that your casual owner wants to deal with I mean that's something that's those are advanced skills that a real pistol enthusiast has to has to have I mean making that kind of ammunition is is tough or you're just you go to a custom loader you buy one box every two years and and that's your ownership of the gun whereas with the Desert Eagle 44 you can um, clearly you know you can buy as much of that as you want you can even hand and it's much simpler to hand load um, ammunition that are that is suitable for that pistol so that's kind of my comparison of them um, I, I can also tell you I don't really like the way they put the rear sight on the auto mag it looks like it's just held in by one kind of a very small cross pin I don't know that that is going to be sufficiently durable if you shoot a lot of rounds in it I don't know that it's gonna break I'm not predicting it is I'm not criticizing it I'm just saying that's one area I would be concerned with um, the Desert Eagle can come with either um, well every a few companies have made sites for it and you know it's um, it's fixed sites are <laughs> they're not coming off anytime soon so I just kind of leave it there the uh, Desert Eagle is a much uh, much tougher tougher gun um, you know and these guns are made for very very small markets you know handgun hunters are a small small part of the gun community and the hunting community and I've known a, I've known a few but you know it's it's hard to find a handgun hunter that that's really into stalking both of these guns seemed like they would be sufficient for handgun hunting um, you know if you're going to you know parachute into Syria and fight Isis with either one of them I, I would take the Desert Eagle that's just me <laughs> but uh, you know they're not guns that are used for that they're not self-defense guns they're designed for hunting they're designed for target practice against you know steel kind of targets and, and knock over and it's for the enthusiast that wants a powerful handgun in a semi-automatic format um, the Desert Eagle is about half the cost because they they just don't produce the volume of the auto mags so that's my uh, assessment there so I, I hope that clarifies uh, and answers any questions 
Okay, next one. Why isn't the 6.5 by 55 Swede used more in rifle competitions like PRS? Well, I have the foggiest idea. I mean, you, you can ask them. My suspicion is, and this is only a suspicion, is that, um, the, first of all, no one is going to be the high-speed, tactical, cool dude using a 130-year-old cartridge. I mean, face it, I think they came out in 1894 or 1892 with the 6.5 by 55. Now, granted, it's been modernized over the deal, but you know what I'm saying? Just the public perception is that's some old grandpa classic cartridge, and there aren't many rifles made for it. It really doesn't work in a short action, which is probably a big problem for those guys. And it's never as far as I know and it could be on a custom basis they are but it's never been used optimized for the kind of bullets that are used in say the 6.5 Creedmoor you know you gotta be careful with the uh, you gotta be careful with the um, uh, rifling and you've gotta be careful with the powders you use now a lot of the 6.5 fans and I shoot 6.5 by 55, so so I'm, I'm kind of, a lot of them say, well, it's got greater case capacity. That's because it was designed for less efficient powder. You can't load it. You will go beyond its pressure limitations if you attempt to use the larger capacity. Just the way it is, the way it goes. Um, sorry, <laughs> you know, that's, that's just it. Uh, so therefore, there's no advantage to using it. 6.5 Creedmoor can even be used in AR-10s. You know, kind of going back to that thing of is you know the AR template. In this case, the AR template is the you know AR-10, and so a lot of cartridges that you know can fit in an AR-10 are going to become popular because that those rifles are going to form the basis of a lot of things that are that are out there. So even, even uh, you know, there's some bolt guns kind of, they almost look like an AR-10, but they're a bolt gun. But the short action cartridges are going to win, and the efficient powder and all that is going to win. No one is going to, unless you're in a, a real eccentric, is going to use a 6.5 by 55 in modern competition. That being said, uh, when I was first started deer hunting, I wanted, and this is back when, I don't even know if Griffin and Howe is in business anymore. I wanted a Griffin and Howe custom bolt action in 6.5 by 55. And I forget what kind of scope I wanted, but it was back in those days, you know, if you had a loophole scope, that was considered, you know, pretty much top drawer. So that was my dream gun. And I never got it because I never stayed hunting and, and, there's no way that I would have ever had the money as a teenager to buy a Griffin and Howe rifle um, unless unless I was walking down the road and one bounced off the back of a truck and fell into my arms. That was about the only way that was ever going to happen. So anyway, uh, that's my take on it. But you'd actually have to ask them. Uh, but I think that's those are the reasons they would use. Why aren't there more 10 millimeter auto pistol caliber carbines you know I don't know um, I think it's because 10 millimeter is expensive ammo 
and it's more expensive, I'm willing to wager, than 5.56. So why would you do 10 millimeter that's more expensive and has less range than 5.56? And 5.56 is a good killer. You know, it's a completely kind of a different theory of a cartridge, but it's going to be just as effective. So I think that's one of the ones where people just ask that. And the the real answer is is not because of other pistol caliber choices are better it's because you can get a 556 that's much better um, or a 300 blackout I suppose would, would be better um, and, and then there's a myriad of cartridges um, you know if you're talking AR flat there 350 legend you know 350 legend is is probably out of an AR probably going to be better than um, 10 millimeter I suppose out of a shorter barrel thing um, that could be wrong though that could be wrong I have to look that up as I'm thinking my way through it I have to look it up but um, you know it's 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 really it's because 556 is such a powerful carbine cartridge if you're going up beyond 45 ACP you may as well make the jump to 556 so that's my that's my thought on that uh, there were some cool 10 millimeter carbines out there. I mean, the only high point, the high point 10 millimeter would be a cool carbine to have. And I'm not a high point guy. I think high points are, you know, horridly ugly and, and everything else. But beauty is as beauty does sometimes. So that would be kind of cool. The the really cool one to have would be um, Auto Ordnance made a 10 millimeter Thompson for a short period of time. And um, how many they made, I'm, I'm not sure. And they made magazines, and, and uh, I don't think they made a drum. <laughs> That'd be awesome. But anyway, they, they made like 20, and I don't think 30 round, but I think they made 20 round magazines. And, uh, you know, it was a, just a longer, more powerful Thompson. And uh, I think they they had no demand. So after after they uh, after they made them for... A short period of time they discontinued them but yeah that'd be pretty cool that'd be that would be very cool as a matter of fact okay on the 35th anniversary of the infamous Miami-Dade shootout is every why is everyone back to nine millimeter parabellum pistols had to do a double take. <laughs> that was a make sure I had that right. Okay, the uh, Miami Dade shootout. You know, there was a guy named Platt had a Mini 14, and he he was hit, and, and he eventually was succumbed to his wounds and died. But he killed two FBI agents who were who were trying to uh, arrest him. So it was a bad bad deal. Uh, you can read about it if you. Um, I think if you. You Google Miami shoot, uh, shootout or or Platt, you know, and and the rest of it. Miami FBI shootout. You'll you'll probably pull it up, and get the uh, details more accurately than I can I can remember them. But the upshot of it was the FBI said we are undergunned with nine millimeter pistols. So the ten millimeter auto, which had kind of languished, you know, the ten millimeter auto came out with the. Uh, what was a 
Dornhaus and Dixon, Bren 10. And Bren 10, they even got Jeff Cooper to sign on and say, this is the greatest combat handgun that has ever been. And, you know, it's based on the CZ-75, but we made improvements. And they, were, they actually were nice guns. I mean, but they were way too big to conceal. I mean, it just... It was too much of a good thing. The, the 10 millimeter was too much of a good thing. This Dornhaus and Dixon couldn't make the guns, couldn't get the magazines, couldn't do... So that all that all crashed. And, and basically, you know, um, Cooper had mud on his face from all that because it was... In, I'm sure it was embarrassing. But they were kind of cool guns. And uh, But the cartridge was pretty cool and Colt put it in... And the 10 millimeter Delta Elite, which was a 1911 in 10 millimeter, and so that was that was kind of a cool gun. And then Smith and Wesson put it into one of their you know their earlier clunky automatics. They're good guns, but they're kind of clunky. You look at them now, they're pretty clunky. But I like them. I always have. I've always liked them. And um, actually, I wish they still made them. I think there's a market for them, but. That's just me. But anyway, I think it was the 1076 was in 10 millimeter. The FBI, you know, bought a bunch of them, issued them to agents, and then realized what a mistake it was because the smaller statured agents couldn't shoot them very well. Um, agents that weren't shooters that just kind of, you know, qualified once in a while and, and, you know, really weren't gun people had a hard time, the recoil. And I think the female agents complained, you know, the size of the gun. This thing was ponderous, you know, and you got to carry it around. So, some, you know, it, it had a lot of problems. So, basically from there, Smith & Wesson and, and I don't know who else came out with the 40 Smith & Wesson, which was a 10 millimeter light. And it's one of the few times where we talked about it last time. Um, one of the few times where gosh, cartridge has actually been shortened and made weaker as <laughs> usually they're stretched and made more powerful but uh, anyway so that was where the 40 smith and wesson came from it dominated in the 90s and early 2000s the uh the police market <clears throat> you know everybody had to have them and then as nine millimeter you know this is the story anyway as nine millimeter ammunition improved uh, everybody decided that they would uh, go back to 9mm because the ammunition was so much better and lighter recoil and, and uh, more capacity. I think the truth really was, as police departments got more diverse, you had people of smaller stature, the lighter recoil guns, you know, it, a miss with a bigger re caliber gun, you know, a miss with a 454 Casole is a lot less effective than a hit with a 45 auto rim so there you go so it was that kind of thinking that hey if uh, we issue these out the people who don't shoot aren't gun people the smaller statured people who who are having a hard time with this gun and the other officers that are just having a hard time with the size of the grip and the uh, the overall you know profile of the gun being too big all those problems went away and they said hey we're getting higher scores that is not a bad decision. I mean, that is not a bad decision. Um, for years, they, you know, they police departments have done the same thing with 38 Special. I mean, hey, basically, is it the most powerful gun out there? No. Is it a gun that most of your officers can shoot well? Yes. And that's key. 
and that's key. So they didn't make a bad decision there. But yes, we're we've now we went bigger and now we're back smaller. And I think the fallacy is everybody who tells themselves that a nine millimeter is as good as a forty or as good as a forty-five that doesn't really matter and all that blah 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 because nine millimeter ammunition is so much improved. You know, do they really have? Do they really shoot? that improved 9mm ammunition. Do they really do it? And some of that 9mm ammunition, when you see it tested, I'm not sure that it works as well as people think. And so I, I would say that, you know, especially with the pandemic and ammo runs, where you're lucky to get ball 9mm, you know, it's welcome, welcome to 1904, <laughs> where, you know, the cartridge was invented with a full patch, full metal jacket bullet, and we're back to 19 we're back to 1904 we've gone back in time 116 or 117 years because we cannot get the high speed ammo now and we're lucky to get something like tull ammo at $25 a box which is the lowest end ammo out there is selling for $25 a box well guess what the super speed stuff if you could find it is going to sell for that's a lot of money that's a lot of money. So the counter argument is, at least for civilian and other use, is maybe bigger is better. You know, maybe we need to go back and say calibers like 45 Colt, 45 ACP, 44 Special, 44 Magnum, um, 3840, 4440. All these old calibers may have may have some relevance anyway. I mean, they may have some relevance. The big chunk of lead, anecdotally anyway, has proven to be a very good stopper. Now, it doesn't work very well against body armor. It doesn't really work at all, but then most handgun rounds don't. So, um, you know, you, you have to sometimes uh, pay your money and take your choice because it's not going to be a very easy or very simple it's not as cut and dry as they want you to believe now these guys all part of what's pushing the nine millimeter is a lot of these guys run shooting schools love nine millimeters and they love glocks why because of the simplicity and reliability if you show up with a, if you show up to any shooting school with your glock auto pistol and full metal jacket ammo you're going to go through that thing probably without a hitch. Probably without a hitch. If that thing pops out of the box, unless you unless you just got an unlucky gun, and I'm sure some Glocks have been that way, but I think the vast majority, part of what they sell is uh, absolutely reliability. So you're going to get a lot of reliability. You're going to get a lot of... of uh, um, durability and you're going to complete the course and that's why they like seeing glocks you know the gun they don't want to see is somebody showing up with their smith and wesson model 19 and and a case of magnum ammunition because that's probably going to create some problems for them so we we do have to realize that that uh you know they want to get they want to run their class and they don't want equipment problems they can't keep stopping for equipment problems which is why they a lot of them endorse Glocks. I'm not saying Glock's a bad gun. 
and I'm not saying it's unworthy of endorsement. I'm just saying that's one of the reasons they do that. There are other good guns out there too, but you know, face it, the Glock was designed uh, for that maximum reliability and durability. But all things being equal, you know, I don't really want one. So there you go. Okay, this last comes to us from our friend of the podcast who was talking to a guy he he was under the impression was a pretty knowledgeable shooter and the guy made some statements about the some of the Russian steel cased ammo that essentially that in 556 it will wear the rifling out of your bore and you'll ha- wind up with a smooth bore um, because of the the jacket material <laughs> and because you know people just don't like steel cased ammo so um, now he did not believe that but he, he thought it might be an interesting topic to discuss and so I, I will tell you what my experience with steel cased ammunition is um, the only thing I really don't I don't really want to use it in an M1 rifle or an, <clears throat> or an M14 rifle I have used steel case 556 in a mini 14 with no problem. I've also used steel cased um, 30 carbine in a course of 30 carbine with no problem. And I've used it in just about everything else with no no functional problems whatsoever. Um, I think people misunderstand the ammunition. And in order to help people understand, I will say that First of all, there's very little steel core ammunition on the market anymore. They, they can't import it. So you don't get steel core ammunition from places uh, that used to be behind the Iron Curtain. That, that kind of stuff is gone. So it's not only has it been used up and bought up, but um, they can't import it anymore. So that's that. So the stuff you're getting is lead core but it has a bimetal jacket okay and now a lot of people don't like that because the bimetal contains some steel so they think it's a steel jacketed round it's really in in point of fact it is really not but the the thing to know is it is soft just like copper so when it goes down your barrel it's only giving the kind of wear that a copper that a lead core copper round would do and you can wear out a barrel I mean you can wear out a barrel using whatever kind of ammunition there is but it's how the barrel wears that's important in military style weapons semi-automatic weapons or kind of anything else like you know think about your M1A or think about your M1 Garand Um, the thing that kills a grand barrel or an AR barrel or, or any other kind of barrel is throat erosion okay that's when the portion of the barrel just in front of the chamber when the cartridge ignites all of that hot gas comes out and it's pushing the bullet down the down the barrel well that that first probably two inches of barrel gets more than its fair share of heat and if you look at an AR barrel or you look at um, a barrel from from any other kind of weapon you'll see that they have a lot more steel back there not only is that to contain the pressure but that's also to operate as a heat sink 
which is something that absorbs the heat until it gets really very very warm and and uh, but what happens on the inside is some of those gases can erode the the first couple of the, like the first two inches of of rifling and everything else and that's why a throat erosion gauge was was there uh, another thing that kills it is also muzzle wear and muzzle erosion and you know there's gauges for those also I have a gauge I think I have a muzzle gauge but I don't know where it is it's <laughs> somewhere when I'm looking for something else I'll find it I guess but um, no I, I would not worry about it as a matter of fact when Russian ammo came out on the market and this is probably in the late 90s yeah probably in the late 90s it was, it was super cheap and it wasn't really labeled wolf it was a lot of it was barnall and uh you know some of the other lesser known manufacturers it's all functionally the same i mean it's all the the same recipe uh, i got some because i wanted to i wanted to test steel ammunition in some world war ii style guns you know like hey walther because the germans used that very extensively so i wanted to i wanted to uh test hey does this really work in a walther p38 how does it is it any different than brass was what i was looking for same thing i got some of the 45 acp um i think that was branded wolf though and i used that in a variety of things and uh you know it, it, it all worked fine it all worked fine the only issue I've ever had with it, and I've said this on the podcast before, but the only issue I've ever had with it was um, I had a semi-automatic Thompson, and when you would chamber around, it would fire, but if you tried to extract a live round out of the chamber, uh, it would pull the bullet out. It would pull the bullet out of the case because there wasn't enough friction between the bullet and the steel case so that it would uh they, they would they would eject together so the bullet would kind of sometimes the bullet would just fall out on its own but you had powder and it was it was a real mess you know it was a real mess i attributed that to to not only the friction problem i just described but i think that thompson had a tight chamber and a tight chamber is usually a tight chamber is usually a sign that somebody's trying to make a match grade weapon which this is not or that the chamber reamer they used had a lot of wear on it and thus the more it is worn the smaller chamber and we're talking very very fine measurements it will cut and I think that was the problem is that it cut a very very it was worn and it cut a very very tight chamber so that when this thing went in it had just enough adhesion between the bullet and the chamber wall right up at the right up at the front of the chamber there was just enough adhesion that it it basically uh, overcame the the friction between the uh, casing and the the base the the bottom of the bullet if you will so that's the only problem i've ever had with it uh, again i you know i don't trust it in gas operated um gas operated guns i just kind of don't um i don't really i i shoot it uh i shoot tula ammo um 762 by 54 uh i like that that's a you know it's a good round it i mean you can still even today 
if you look look online you can find it for 13 14 dollars a box of 20 which is which is an astounding value compared to everything else out on the market so those are uh, those are great things and uh, i just wanted to you know tell you that i i think if you ask me today where is the future of ammo kind of going and it's not the innovation it's not this that there is going to be a push for inexpensive ammo um, the current price structure is just not going to last it's killing competition and the only way to get availability and reasonable price is to do volume loading with and you know just got to say the lowest cost components you can get so you're gonna see some I think I think you're gonna see some American-made steel cased ammo that is very very competitively priced with the with the imports and I think you're gonna see the imports ramp up too I think the day of, of you know the range chickens will see even more steel cases than they do now and uh, I just think that's the way it's going to go. I just think that's the way it's going to go. The current price architecture of ammunition, especially 9mm and 5.56, it just it can't hold up. It cannot hold up. It'll kill competition. So will it, will it get into other calibers? I think only military-style calibers, like 45 ACP, it's, it's kind of already there. So you might see American-made 45 ACP in steel cases, um, as it was in World War II. You know, we used steel case stuff in World War II. Um, is there any other? I don't think you'll see them for the kind of our fixed gas guns like M1A and M1 Garand. I don't think you'll be using them there. But you may even see them in some hunting ammunition. Bring the hunting ammunition is outrageously expensive. Uh, part of that is the bullets they use are, are premium bullets. Um, you know, I was I was kind of uh, look at that, and you know, the forty dollar box of ammo that's being fired in a <clears throat> seven millimeter magnum or something else. Hey, it, it maybe steel cased is the way to go with that. You know, you don't really need it to hand load if you're if you're just a hunter oh why would you care and they can put a reasonable bullet or even a premium bullet in a steel case with the uh, right kind of powder um, and give you that you know the kind of performance you're looking for um, I think that is entirely possible where you will not see them is in the super powerful things like 338 Lapua and some of these very high pressure rounds you will not see them there no, you won't see them there and um, you know you won't see it in 50 cal and if they do I think you could send it over to Kentucky ballistics and they might test it for you but I don't think you'll ever see um, oddly though you know there is steel cases I've got some steel case Warsaw pack stuff I think it's like 20 millimeter stuff like that a lot of that stuff is in steel cases so you know, you could you could do it, but I think that would probably be a bridge too far. Those those guys aren't looking to save ten or twenty dollars uh, here and there. They're looking for ultimate consistency and performance. But your guy who's just shooting a I don't know two seventy Winchester seven millimeter Magnum, 
Um, you know, some of these other ones, yeah, they'll take a hunting bullet in a steel case and run it through Remington 700, Winchester Model 70, or any other bolt gun. Won't matter. They'll do it. Um, and you know what? It's if it saves them a few bucks. If you only buy one one box a year, and the difference is forty bucks or fourteen dollars, you know, a lot of guys are going to go for the fourteen dollar option. Only makes sense. So anyway. That is it for this edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And uh, this is kind of a special edition where we picked up some odds and ends. You can always leave comments and questions on Podbean, or you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. So until next time, this is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>